Greetings everyone. Before we begin today's episode, which would be the 11th episode of Material Analysis Podcast, um, we are going to have this addendum, which is because of some recent events. So the episode was going to be on nationalism and it's called Kalparashtra. But uh, coincidentally, uh, on, uh, on August 5th, the, uh, the Indian government, uh, they tried to, in a way, uh, abrogate uh, Article 370 on Kashmir. So that is extremely relevant to the episode. Uh, it's not so much that Article 370 has been abrogated because technically it hasn't been, but okay. it, they, they have attempted to modify things in a way that removes Kashmir's special status. So this is very interesting because most of the people who are supporting the move and some of the people who are opposing the move are both saying that, you know, Article 370 has been scrapped. But you can't scrap Article 370. That's not how it works. So before we begin the episode proper, which was recorded earlier, we have a few comments on what has just happened uh, and its constitutionality. Now, we are not constitutional experts in the podcast, so we need to have a constitutional expert in an interview. So it would be a, a two-part episode um, where in the first part, we will release what we had earlier recorded on the concept of nationalism itself. And in the second part, we will have an interview proper with a constitutional expert. But before we begin the episode, uh, we have comrade Dilip, comrade Bella and comrade Pinky here and me Chandu. And we want to like very quickly summarize what we think has happened uh, without going into very deep legal details. So. Uh, Comrade Bela, why don't you like give us a very quick overview of what has happened and what do we think about it? Hi everyone, this is Bela. Um, I, I think part of um, part of the shock value um, of what has happened on August fifth is essentially the Indian government. Uh, sort of presenting the presidential order de facto in the Rajya Sabha. Amit Shah himself sort of read it out um, and it seems to have been put into effect without any sort of constitutional process or parliamentary process um, and it's horrifying that they've basically put Kashmir under lockdown. Um, they've put most of its uh, political leaders under house arrest. Only the BJP leaders are not under house arrest. They've cut off internet and phone connectivity. So Kashmiris have had a very difficult time trying to get their voices out there, trying to even understand what's happening happening because every time something like this happens it's usually followed by very brutal acts of violence um, and so the Kashmiri sort of representation is next to nil right now in the public space let alone you know in 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 parliamentary process um, uh, removing Kashmir's uh, Jammu and Kashmir's special status and converting it into a union territory with Ladakh as a sort of separate administrative unit um, there's a lot to be said about the whys of this this is a very old sort of RSS ploy uh, and imagination of how Kashmir fits into the Indian national sort of uh, Indian national imagination, if you will, uh, and how how sort of Kashmir, quote unquote, Kashmir is an integral part of India. Um, and I think the, the only sort of ethical left position we can have on this is to completely oppose the government's view. Uh, it has particularly also sort of demonstrated that the Indian state is now operating entirely in fascist mode. It has no respect for process. It has no respect for political representation of Jammu and Kashmir's uh, population uh, and this has to be condemned wholeheartedly and we have to mount resistance um, against this act and, and and I think all of you have more to say on that correct to make this absolutely clear to our viewers who might um, you might like 
because you know kashmir is such a sore issue in india and people generally do not have enough information on this very emotive issue we need to make mm-hmm. something very clear here uh, one thing is which people keep forgetting is that the union of kashmir and india was a union of two sovereign states under an instrument of accession article 370 was essentially the replacement of the instrument and it was and the idea was that barring certain things uh, kashmir will re- retain a certain degree of autonomy and will have a separate constitution so there are two things going on here first there is the essence of the constitution which has been violated definitely and then the legal aspect of it which a lot of constitutional lawyers are publicly commenting is that it doesn't hold weight because there are two things which have happened the first thing is that you cannot use changes in article 367 to sort of reflect changes in article 370 what they did is that they changed um, the words constitutional assembly in 367 to now refer to the legislative assembly but that does not exist so essentially the constitution assembly becomes the legislative assembly which becomes the governor you can't do that like you can't have make changes in 367 and have that reflected in 370 because there are clauses in 370 which specifically state that you cannot change anything in 370 without the consent of the state constitutional assembly which does not exist and has not been convened and the second part is that you cannot make these presidential notifications on jammu and kashmir without the consent of the state government which does not exist so either the presidential notification is itself unconstitutional and even if it is constitutional it's not valid because there is no state government again we are not constitutional experts we will get one in the second part of the episode where we discuss these two things with them but as of now this is our reading of the situation now as to the nijer reactions indians have when they hear the word azadi or self determination when it comes to kashmir i think they have a very inaccurate idea of what kashmir's relationship with india is what material conditions exist in kashmir in the past 3 decades and more importantly what do actual kashmiris think of that relationship with india i think most indians uh, have a, a very ill informed idea on all of these three things what do you have to say about that uh, comrade dilip yeah to put it in plain words i think we all have to come to uh, you know uh, uh, grasp the uh, magnitude of this because hindutva has grand agendas i think they have one of their agendas is to abrogate 370 and they have thought long and hard about this and they have put a lot of thought and efforts into this and they have clearly planned it step by step so mm-hmm. as uh, comrade uh, comrades have explained before they have actually uh, pulled out from the government and they have manipulated with the election co- commission and especially the governor to make sure that the elections are not taking place on the on on times to so that we actually have a legislative assembly of sorts uh, 
mm-hmm. and then they have this puppet gana who can sign on uh, practically anything 370s 1c makes completely clear that notwithstanding anything else in the constitution you can't unilaterally abrogate uh, 370 at all but mm-hmm. that's to be seen what what's going to happen in the supreme court in to be to be uh, with all honesty i think we we cannot have too much of trust on the supreme court at all um, uh, the challenges mm-hmm. are to be welcomed but we have to watch out for what kind of challenges are going to be put out in summary so the worst fears that we had as uh, as you know secular leftists are going to come true substantial assaults on the federalism as well so it's mm-hmm. basically saying that yeah if you don't like we we will trample with your elections like there has been no general body or oh, sorry uh, the local body elections in tamil nadu at all and nothing has been taken uh, you know to to rectify that so they will probably form puppet governments and play with the election commission to delay or you know completely wash off governments and then they put a puppet governor in place and they could trample with federalism as much as they want through a presidential uh, presidential order and nothing means anything anymore this is yeah. uh comrade uh, dilip that is an excellent line we need to remind our audience something of which the courts have again and again upheld in indian jurisprudence it is that laws are never perfect and there has to be an idea of what the whole constitutional structure are supposed to be they reflect a certain spirit and when you are sort of cynically making uh changes to that in order to subvert the very purpose of the constitution it does not matter whether whether these things hold up to scrutiny or not often they don't like for example indira gandhi had tried to use 368 to abrogate 368 and the court had thrown that out so the court understands these things uh, or at least used to understand these things what exactly. i'm trying to get at for the audience here is that stop saying that the government has done this smartly as some people are, oh that they have been so clever that they have used this and used that i i think i do agree with you that it helps to think that uh, this is a structure we're all bound up in as uh, you know citizens or or me- members or inhabitants of what we understand to be india in that sense if the government can be so canny and disruptive uh then it it will affect all of us in some way that sort of mutual responsibility is helpful but i i do want to nonetheless stress on the ethical responsibility part of it because for too many people kashmir is this far off place uh that they really don't you know feel any connection to except for you know when they imagine maybe holidaying there or something of that sort and they don't think of it as a community that they have any responsibility to and uh and there are people who are sufficiently protected by their uh, wealth and and social capital that even if the bjp were to you know be creating puppet governments all all over uh, in various states they would still somehow not be as personally affected by the grims i myself growing up um was confused about what the situation was and doubtful and it was always presented to me as something that involved a threat to india's national security and these are big loaded words that are very good at creating a kind of panic because you know who, who wouldn't want to protect the security of the country that they live in uh and over time that one thing that i just realized is that the situation in kashmir is simply morally morally and ethically untenable the the way in which the indian government has pretended to maintain normalcy there is by constantly keeping it un, under the grip of severe militarization people are uh, const, 
instantly terrified for their lives for their relatives lives um and uh, and and the kind of violence that has just become an everyday affair there and the kind of constant um you know manipulations that have to be made to to law and to uh, employment of security for me is there is no logic on earth that can justify that and over time that became clear to me in a way that made all the other concerns kind of pale because with what's happened recently i do think that you know not everybody has a very good head for legal details there are some for example as you know Chandu was saying in the beginning there are some who had a misconception of Kashmir status in the first place but the other thing i think some people with a limited understanding of the situation do is they often hear people who have some understanding of the law say that oh 370 was imperfect um it was a messy situation it made no party very happy there were groups within kashmir that you know they're not unified and did not have the same attitude towards 370 or towards india uh, so they're trying to present what's happening right now as this kind of clean up and uh, as a way of you know doing away with the imperfections and this is a way in which the bjp government has constantly been trying to portray itself that they have come into a situation that the congress has left behind as as messy as weak as you know uh, not not calculating everything perfectly and they're trying to show that they're doing one gigantic like uh, safai job for all of india basically and uh, in what i think needs to be stressed here is whether or not you understand the law whether or not you know the, the whole jargon of it is confusing to you or not because it is confusing to me it's important to get one thing straight which is that this government cannot be trusted to do anything legally that that uh, substitutes an earlier imperfect situation with a better one it is mm-hmm. very likely that they will be substituting it with something far worse because mm-hmm. uh, they do not they do not have any respect for the people of kashmir they have not made any attempt to to hear them Okay, and just to add to what to com- what Comrade Pinky has already said, um, there are multiple refugee groups that have come out as a result of the JNK conflict, and that the 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 government has always used these groups in various ways to actually negotiate their own power stakes in Kashmir. And so, I just want to also add that if you are listening to this and you feel like, what about you know refugees coming out of the situation who have been mistreated before? Just understand that you know narratives of vengeance, narratives of revenge, narratives of you know like this is a this is a comeback to what. what certain people suffered in the past is not a good way to resolve the kashmir conflict this is much more uh, important in terms of self determination the fact that kashmiri people have a right to decide where they have to go and multiple groups have to have representation at the table to be able to decide that as indians i see there are so much rejoicing and gloating going around after tens of thousands of people dead after so many mass graves after mass graves and detailed report from un on torture and rapes the mm. language that we are using at this point of time like final solution by famous celebrities yeah. actually tweeting it out completely genocidal and maniac language to absolutely support this kind of thing we have to really think and reflect at this point of time how we treat fellow human beings and how we have actually you know historically treated them with huge amount of army the most militarized place on the planet earth in terms of density and the mm. other thing is that you have to be really honest about this the bjp are completely out of uh, you know out of uh, bounds and they have done this unconstitutional and illegal thing but it it wasn't the bjp who, uh, you know who's entirely responsible the occupation has been going on for decades yes. and the opposition party which yes. knew that this was coming because either you have to be completely stupid and incompetent or you have to be really you mm. know uh, un unpre- 
principle to actually uh, not tell this to public. And this is completely clear because the Congress themselves have come out and said to NDTV that they knew this was coming for yeah. at least a week and mm. you couldn't mobilize yourself and organize yourself to come to a completely principled position, even, uh, even you know, a flawed one. You mm. can't mobilize yourself this kind of incompetence from INC on top of occupation for decades is ludicrous and shameful. It's a travesty that uh, so many of the other parties that are in, uh, that have political representatives right now in the parliament have actually supported the BJP on this. It's a failure that parties like the BSP, AAP, um, uh, the AIA, DNK have all sort of just collapsed and just uh, completely sided with uh, with uh, with this government. It's like uh, rather hypocritical because BSP postures itself as a party of the constitution after Ambedkar's legacy and what they have done is laughable. Mm -hmm. So there is that. And AAP postures itself as a federalist party devoted to getting statehood for Delhi, etc. And ADMK postures itself to be a slave party and it has completely been consistent with what it has been doing. <laughs> <laughs> Though I'm glad that the left parties and DMK have uh, taken a principal stand against this. So there is that. <laughs> okay. But and a point which has not been raised, which is also a point to think about, there is a capitalist aspect to all of this, an extractive mm. aspect, because, you know, the, as soon as this thing started, people had a glee going through them that they will be able to buy land, they will be able to get mining rights, an aspect of rapine and pillage, basically, which, uh, which fuels this. On that note, we will begin the episode on nationalism proper. It's called Kalparashtra. Kalparashtra has two meanings. Uh, Kalparashtra could mean infinite nation, Kalpa being a word for time or eternal nation, but Kalpa also means imagination. So it could mean the imagination of the nation. Uh, Comrade Bela is going to be the host. Comrade Bela, why don't you take it forward? Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 11 of Material Analysis, the podcast. I will be your host again today, and this is Bela. Uh, and I'm joined by three other comrades um, to, to for this episode, which is titled Kalparashtra. So today's episode is going to look at nation and nationalism. Uh, and I'm joined today by comrades Chandu, Pramod, and Pinky. Um, I thought we would start with the question of... Um, you know, how, to some extent, how do we all feel about what nationalism is and whether you, you, whether you have any nationalist sentiments or what are your feelings more broadly towards nationalism? Uh, and I don't just mean Hindutva nationalism, because I know that that's easy to, um, easy to say is absolutely, you know, uh, alienating, exclusionary and really sort of vile and hateful. But is, is nationalism necessary? Um, for a country like India, is nationalism a good thing? And I thought I'll start with you, Comrade Chandu. Do you want to go first? Uh, I have some opinions on nationalism, which I hope that they do not completely alienate our uh, viewership. So my opinions on nationalism are pretty much what uh, Rabindranath Tagore's, uh, who was the guy who wrote our national anthem, his opinions was. You should read what he has written on nationalism, where he calls it a bunch of names and he calls it one of the most poisonous things to have existed. And I don't find any merit in nationalism, quite to the contrary. Historically, it has been one of the instigators of a lot of different kind of oppressive violence at different places. Nationalism is a fairly modern 
collective sentiment like in in feudal times across most countries people did not think of themselves as nations they did think of themselves as countries but there's a difference between a country and a nation um correct a country is often a political unit uh, which is, uh, inside which there is some kind of state which has a a sort of a legal system of course the modern definition of the country is that they, you know there is a state which has a monopoly of violence but that has not always been true you have had countries in feudal times where you know there have been uh, pockets of completely independent rule but there was an understanding that such and such thing was what was called a realm in the in, in using european language similarly in the in the subcontinent the concept of country was like very fluid and till uh, like often defined itself in its interactions with outsiders mm. so uh, even even names by which we now understand ourselves as a country not as a nation these are different things mm. are names which are often given to us by outsiders including india which is greek for land of the indus river mm. and and hindustan which is persian for land of the indus river so they are actually identical words um mm. uh, in different languages and uh, and uh, it's also interesting that you know uh, the greek concept of india was very different from like the geographical india like they right. they had, like because ge- greek geography at that time was very bad they did not really understand how the world was and how where different people lived but some mm-hmm. mysterious land in the east on the banks of this great river was called india and it was often also not understood which one of the great rivers are we talking about so you know mm-hmm. there is often like back and forth of fantastical tales and tales from traders but coming back to the point of nation which is much more modern than the idea of a country right nations start to form uh, when you have these very identifiable ethnicities which sort of start to imagine themselves as a whole mm-hmm. so you have the frankish nation for example where the franks who were a german germanic tribe who settled the land which was inhabited by the goles before and they start to think of themselves as a nation you had the angles and the saxons dream of of what eventually became england mm. and and such and such there was always this ethnic factor but then like around westphalia it becomes apparent that it's not always easy to make you know clear demarcations between ethnicities and languages in europe and mm. often people and peoples would think about their nation forming in in slightly myth- mythological terms they would make up stuff which never really happened and you see that really common in not just in india but like you know in europe in places like the balkans like right. you have natural myths which are uh, completely completely modernist creations essentially in in some ways i mean it's overused as a term but it is a social construct right it it is constantly being constructed as well um on an everyday basis yes nation is a social construct though however that phrase doesn't mean much because like even money is a social construct does not mean that it's not real or powerful oh no it's real it's real yes. this i'm not trying to contest its reality but uh, it's not uh, it has it's always not a stable a, category it has always been a very like a, a reality which defines itself in terms of another um mm-hmm. it has always been a reality which has been very violently practiced um there has been leftist readings of nations which has of course varied a lot like even within like marxist spheres there are very different readings of what a nation is like right. uh, somebody who comes from a, a orthodox marxist tradition has a very different reading of what a nation is from 
somebody who is like more more uh, mainstream who comes from like a uh, something you know ussr based essentially and and that, then it becomes like interesting because you have these uh, leftist attempts to sort of uh, use nationhood as a, as a tool to achieve like independence from like colonial imperialist right. powers and where right. they are like pushing nationalist movements in the global south right and on that right. note a lot of people would say that you know nationalism has its use it can be used to sort of galvanize a people who are fighting for their liberty against their right. oppressors Right. but again that is not like really so clear cut right because you have oppressors I mean, and then you have the oppressed who are also doing oppressions we we see that multiple times in uh, in places like india where you have local elites who have always sort of used nationalism to sort of assert their dominance like right. uh, um, i just wanted to ask you about that because you were saying that you know uh, you you think uh, you agree with tagore that nationalism is a kind of poisonous uh, concept and in some ways even imported and i know that some people have critiqued tagore for being kind of uh, replacing the idea of nationalism with like this cosmopolitanism that was considered kind of elite and idealistic in its own and do you believe yeah. that's kind of a false choice I I think not only is that a false choice but it is often a sort of a politically motivated uh, sort of framing because a lot of the critiques of what are called elite cosmopolites is often a very convenient uh, and very powerless scapegoat you would have heard this phrase perhaps uh, in, in in surprisingly in leftist cultures people called uh, rootless cosmopolites and ruthless cosmopolitans and and this was often a sort of a slur mm. they don't you know have a nation and they are essentially poisoning the heartland of wherever right. they go and like that mm-hmm. and and you will and you know it's never really defined who these elites are but what is commonly understood is that these elites are deracinated who don't have a if you look a little deeply into that you would often find that very conveniently these deracinated elites are often voices of opposition to whatever the uh, sort of uh, totalist project going on in that area is and often time the lone anti oppression or anti imperialist voices mm-hmm. even today even if you like when you see nativism sort of becoming an in thing in various parts of the globe this sort of critique against uh, these cosmopolites or whatever they are called has become fairly common and often it's very hard to understand who these cosmopolites are and why are they so dangerous that you know why are like how can they be simultaneously uh, too few to be like uh, to be an irrelevant sort of way of thinking about things but actually be dangerous as well and right. and if you look in like what's happening in turkey for example um there's the same sort of thing which is happening they're, they're like calling out their intellectuals with these kind of uh verbiage so i am like very leery of sort of falling into that trap and like playing that game of like rooted individual versus rootless individual while there are imaginations of nationhood which have come from the more marginalized sort of people it's hard to find cases of it being you know purely liberatory without there being some catch to it so it i think it's uh, it's useful to sort of critique this concept of nation and i also think that it's perhaps not even useful from like that, that liberatory project sort of thing 
as it's uh, as it's sometimes thought but i i know that you know people would disagree me on, with me on right. that i think yeah. your your point is mainly that we should see nationalism as being a reactionary force um, even when it sometimes has productive tendencies right, right. Uh, and i think you brought up the state of turkey which actually brings me to some events in india this week that have actually been deeply disturbing um the uap act is being modified right now to um, to allow the state to actually identify uh, practically anyone as a terrorist anyone with dubious connections to to organizations and things like that and that the onus to actually say that you're not a terrorist is going to come down to the individual being a used uh, a very sort of draconian kafkaesque law if you will um and i'm and i guess i'm i'm really also sort of also the end right also the exactly and then you also have the the rules uh, for um, for the central services commission um and i think we, we're living in a very fraught moment in india i mean hindutva nationalism in in some ways is actually an outgrowth of the many contesting nationalisms that emerged in the anti colonial struggle uh, and i guess it's becoming harder and harder for us to actually recover something productive in this moment uh, to being nationalist uh, and 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 there's a sort of of real evolution going on with nationalism and its relationship with the state comrade pramod do you have have um, something to say about that no this is the first time in indian history where uh, you i i mean like i'm not really sure whether it was in colonial times but at least in, after 1947 there has never been a state where parliament has essentially moved an amendment to an act that declares that you know individuals can be called terrorists mm-hmm. um, it, it, so far it was just you could call organizations terrorist organizations blah 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 now you have these amendments which which are significantly more draconian than any sort of legislature that we've seen in uh, post colonial india but now right now we're at that stage where you have cases like you know anand teltumde and this group of mm. activists from uh, in maharashtra mm. being uh, randomly accused and picked up and sent to jail uh, we've had uh, previously people being uh, you know arrested on suspicion of you know for what what happened with jain sai baba in delhi or mm. with uh, binayak shen in chhattisgarh that you have uh, people randomly being picked up now this has been going on for some time but right now you've got a law which you know by which basically can call you a terrorist if they merely suspect that you might have anti national tendencies we've right. seen uh, state governments uh, for instance the uttar pradesh state government sending a notification to universities uh, you know asking them to sign on to um, agreement saying that they will not tolerate any anti national activity on their campuses Mm-hmm. and we also have amendments to uh, the central civil servants uh, rules reg- rules and regulations which basically now have been extended to university professors uh, the by the norms of the uh, by those very regulations you cannot criticize the state you cannot even conduct research that might be uh, opposed to the interests of the state so now we are right now living in a time where i think you know things have become more draconian than they ever have been since at least the emergency now there's a difference between what happened in the emergency and what's happening today in the emergency you had a government that completely suspended democracy but right now whatever is happening is happening with a democratically elected government that right. you know as far as we can see has not uh, or at least as far as the norms and regulations of this country has not suspended democracy in any way it is doing this with full democratic support mm-hmm. you're seeing the media regularly lambast people just for coming out and protesting against the government i think it's important to think about how we arrived here because uh, you know once the emergency ended i mean like if you go back and if you re- 
read op-eds from that time, if you read commentary from that time. Everyone said that, you know, the, those were the darkest days of Indian democracy. For some reason, it seems like things have gotten worse except with popular support. And I think nationalism and the evolution of nationalism since then has played a fundamental role in getting mm-hmm. popular support for this. You know, I, well, I think the nation and the state and the government were separate things still. You could have yes, an idea of yes. India that was not the NDA government, for instance, right? Yeah. I actually um, completely yeah, I agree with I, that. Yeah, because I know uh, people who fought against the emergency at that point of time who were definitely using the nation as a reason to fight against what Indira Gandhi was doing. What they knew and and loved of the nation was at risk in some way. And, you know, with Jayaprakash Narayan, I I believe like he actually used uh, rhetoric and sentiments that were related to to India and loving India as a a kind of counter. Now, effective, whether that's effective or problematic in its own way is another debate. But I think that the very same people I know whose, you know, parents and grandparents um, Mm -hmm. kind of fought against the emergency then I actually can see some of these same people now pretending as though nothing particularly out of order is going on and I I really think that what has allowed it to start seeming normal and not like a state of crisis is is precisely the fact that uh, the the rhetoric of the nation is now in service of what's happening rather than being something as threatened by in a way it's like the merging of multiple cults so you had the cult of the nation and you had the cult of the state and these used to be different cults and then of course you had the sort of the uh, like the religious racial ethnic uh, concept of nation as well hindutva nationalism essentially but uh, not only has secular nationalism started to merge with hindutva nationalism it has also started to merge with like other forms of venerations to the nation like the army used to be something that was supposed to be uh, not just far away like it was supposed to be a thing different from civilian life but it was also supposed to be something that was relatively like uh, to a mind of a lot of a middle class people it was something cleaner than the democratic government right but Mm. now what you are seeing is that like that army it's it's imagery is being like directly co-opted by the state in a way which has not been done before like you have um not only army stuff being showed in like popular media and popular culture as movies and stuff but then the government is also like eagerly co-opting stuff and like like criticizing the government becomes somehow criticizing the army which then becomes somehow criticizing the nation and which then becomes somehow criticizing the country and they are all different things mm-hmm. right Right, right. So, like, if you go back to that Hindi movie Border, I mean, like, that was in the late <laughs> 90s, right? Yes. I mean, uh, uh, Border, when it came out, I remember it was seen as a very ultra-nationalist movie. It was a very pro-army movie. It was a very nationalist movie. The songs that were, you know, from the movie have become sort of like Independence Day and Republic Day classics yes. of yes. sorts. Uh, but... You know, at the end of the movie, there is this sequence. Uh, there's another song, Peng Mere Dushman Mere Bai, which basically criticizes the idea of war, which shows, you know, this, uh, how, you know, how, you know, absurd a border is, how absurd that, you know, uh, can't, uh, these, these two nations are even fighting. And, you know, this, uh, you know, it ends on this hopeful note of a white dove flying, you know, the, the flags of India and Pakistan. <laughs> You yeah, know, yeah. 
we have come so now. far that a sunny deol movie would be radically progressive by <laughs> our <laughs> time so but then sunny deol has himself joined the bjp so yeah. that, that is something to keep in mind too we in the podcast <laughs> yeah. panel are very disappointed in you sunny deol go <laughs> apologize to uh, all those poor soldiers who died for you in border then uh, to the cast of gadar go apologize to them you are not a fighter for justice anymore you are no more the sunny deol who like does up a pump from the ground and fought oppressors and shit like shame on you sunny deol like yeah yeah so and you know around the same time we've also been having this evolving uh, conversation and i think it's important to address this we've been having an evolving conversation on kashmir and pakistan because again when i go back to some of the stuff that was written in the 90s there was um, when the insurgency in kashmir broke out and there was tremendous repression in the valleys in the 90s there was this feeling that you know ultimately we should come we should you know there was a feeling within civil society that maybe there's a point to the azadi demands maybe we should be negotiating maybe we should sit down at the table with the huriyat and the jklf and kashmir and, and, and pakistan i, I mean even somebody as a objectively terrible as vajpayee actually tried to like you know talk right. and that was like right, very right. different although from what we are seeing now although although to be fair that was sabotaged by advani uh, yeah true and it never never progressed beyond that but here's the thing that you know if you have you know you are having a bjp government in uh, the 90s and the 2000s saying that they're willing to negotiate something now uh, but in 2019 there is absolutely no scope for negotiation and uh, remember we we had a war, we had a border major border skirmish with pakistan at that point of time in kargil you know even after the parliament attacks for that matter you've had uh, uh, you are still willing to negotiate you still need to talk but right after 2611 suddenly there is this upsurge of uh, national sentiment because i remember around uh, around 2611 there was times now the times group which was running with these campaigns for daman ki asha etc right you know, there right. were all these yeah. uh, the people the have forgotten how itself. much of a chameleon that whole group is though like the early Ar- arnab goswami yeah arnab hey, arnab goswami He used to posture himself as a more leftist than like Sardesai and also people have yeah, forgotten yeah, all yeah, that yeah. time. Times now used to get a lot of Pakistani panelists, and they used to have civil discussions. My Anup Goswami and Hamid Mir, etc., would have civil discussions, etc. Mm. Although the, the shouting brand was beginning from that time. Gradually, I've seen that you know, you know, the evolution of that nationalist rhetoric have also criminalized and you know, sort of. started saying that you know even association with left wing movements radical left movements right. uh, is now anti national and that is exactly what, you know because i remember when chhatrodhar mahato binayak sen etc was were arrested there was a lot mm-hmm. of civil society outrage regarding it okay. yes. if something of that sort were to happen today i doubt that would be the case yeah, yeah people like sudha bhardwaj in jail and uh, like she is not a like a person from the margin she is actually a person who like spent all of her life in the limelight and doing a lot of work so it's like yeah, exactly that he gets arrested for something he completely did not endorse 
Yeah. yeah, I mean that's ridiculous. I mean, that's ridiculous. ridiculous. ஆனாஸ்தான் அண்ட் காஷ்மீர் எக்ஸெட்ரா point in the sense that you suddenly see uh, an absurd you know for instance this is now fresh okay before 2611 the upa actually had struck down the pota act what uh, was uh, prevention of terrorism act mm. now suddenly after 2611 there is massive pressure from the opposition for the upa to get quote unquote tough on terror and they do certain things manmohan singh comes out and says that uh, you know um the left wing extremism is the biggest internal security threat that india faces that right and, uh, correct and you have an all out mobilization of uh, you know armed forces in central india you see the repression in kashmir starting to worsen at that point of time i mean it was already bad i mean like I have, since i have people kashmiri friends it was never good let's be clear on that at this point of time there is no question of that you know you look at kashmiris protesting the media discourse is how do we repress them uh, you know even further there are civil society and media people who are saying that the government is not being harsh enough and perhaps they should be using live rounds instead of uh, pellets or whatever yeah, so yeah so i'm i'm wondering about how like the the sort of triangular relationship between like Pakistan India and Kashmir uh and i don't know if some of you have different memories of the way that uh, kargil appeared in your imagination when you were younger in school uh i'd be curious to hear but uh when i was in school during kargil for example i feel like my memory does not really retain much conversation about kashmir at all it almost seemed like pakistan and india were these two sort of powers and there seemed to be almost this like strategic thing and i remember at that point of time that um i mean these were very subtle ways in which we were just primed to be generally sympathetic towards um the the army where i remember a friend of mine like writing out a letter like dear jawan something something yeah, something yeah, sitting right yeah, next to yeah. me so these were small little ways i feel like in which a sense of like loyalty is just inculcated in us yeah. like these are the people who keep us safe by sacrificing their lives at the border right but it almost seemed like this expected narrative whereas i feel like increasingly with, with kashmir what's being happening is that it's almost it's not just between india and pakistan anymore but it's almost this idea that you know kashmir is a problem because these are the people who are sort of foiling india from within and if if we don't subdue them then pakistan is going to get inroads into india at that point of time you were talk okay for instance let's put it this way when we were talking about kashmir when we were kids uh, the narrative was that uh, although although by all means it's not it's it's a false narrative but the narrative was that you know most kashmiris are not like this there are some kashmiris mm-hmm. who are independent but most of them you know would much rather stay in india and like have like you know a normalcy restored etc 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 although that's not true but it was I actually it was, it was actually a way of bragging about india by saying that oh india yeah. is so good that they'll actually want to stay there yeah 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 and now i think the conversation in a sense has become more honest but in a very perverse way yeah. where now you have kashmiris themselves people 
acknowledging the fact in a sense that there is extreme uh, you know anger towards india in kashmir right. and that however mm. india is not prepared for the political situation and as much exactly. as we acknowledge that because it is now an existential threat to the map of india and you know this exactly. there's also been this kind of thing that you know you take away kashmir you take away the you know crown of india yeah. or something mm-hmm. that sort yeah yeah and that sort of thing so right now it is not the humanity of kashmiris is not even up for debate it, they do, it doesn't exist anymore exactly and if early how, was in- so now if you talk about kashmir now if you say maybe you know the army even if you take the most weak t position and which mm-hmm. is the i mean which is the mainstream opposition position in uh, like parliament etc that you know uh, let up on hostilities like right. you know start try you know bringing back some amount of political normalcy like start demilitarizing the valley and bring in political normalcy to the valley that itself is seen as stretch Yeah, and that is extremely dangerous. Seen with you know left wing, uh, uh, you know radical left movements, certain movements which are not even uh, associated with the left for that matter. Uh, any sort of uh, you know militant tribal uh, in Central India where you know you're against land grabbing by uh, corporations or by the government, etc. All of these are being seen as an internal security threat, and that's where again, where you know, these new amendments to the NIN you are come in. The moment, the moment you have these protests against state action, you might just be called uh, associated with uh, left wing, radical left organization, and said that okay, you personally are a terrorist. and they don't need much to declare you they just need to suspect they don't, that you are and and you have even individuals doing work like journalism for instance gauri lankesh is one example you have people like pansare and uh, dabolkar right who are basically rationalists working against superstition among rural communities you have um, yeah. kalburgi who was basically a professor of lingayat history um, and these are targeted because they are considered to be propagating viewpoints or ideologies that are yeah. considered again anti national or anti yeah. whatever they imagination of the hindutva nation is right and so it's individuals yeah. even when they are literally assassinated by by these you know sanatani organizations yeah there's no sympathy on social media sometimes you're appalled by the fact that people yeah. literally say well why was she working with these people anyway why was she trying to mobilize sex workers in bangalore why was she trying to you know generally the way international media reports certain conflicts they make a distinction between uh militants and between terrorists right mm-hmm. so for instance when it involves two combatants i mean like if you if you're talking about attacks against combatants for instance the military the police etc it's rarely called an act of terrorism it's usually called an act of militancy and you know uh, you know you uh even you will actually notice this in the way the bbc even covers the taliban for instance when they're attacking convoys at uh, i mean like army convoys etc mm-hmm. then it's called a militant attack it's not called mm-hmm. a terrorist attack a terrorist mm-hmm. attack they specifically use it when they're targeting civilians however you are seeing uh the media without exception and i mean media ranging from times now and republic to even ndtv mm-hmm. calling attacks upon uh you know military targets as terrorist attacks and that i right. think these words have you know a much heavier connotation than some of us yes i mean it's a matter of technicality but you know when you portray someone as a terrorist you also personalize the threat yes to the civil there is a reason why uh, these things are being now called terrorist attacks and it's not just like people being stupid and don't know what words mean of course it's a part of that like indian media is dreadfully uh, incompetent and we all know that 
but there is a bit more to it and that is india's emotional attachment to its army in a way that is like rare for developing countries like what happened is that because of certain very clever decisions after independence india was not plagued by like army interference in civilian matters and coups in the way pakistan bangladesh burma and even china is like in all of these countries the armies have a very significant part in their in, in in like influencing and often downright controlling the civilian government right india didn't and it's not a like it's not accidental it was like some very clever maneuvering by nehru and other uh, government right. people at that time a deliberate attempt to like uh, hobble the army completely and it worked it worked beautifully now what that did is that it gave a very potent tool to the people who are constructing the idea of indian nationhood and the tool was that we are in essence a morally superior nation we might be economically weak and millions of our children might be dying of malnutrition or whatever but we are a free nation fundamentally mm. because the army here like we are a democracy this phrase has always been used a world's largest democracy oh, yeah. and and it was always used in a in a like a dichotomy with the army that look our army does not come and uh, do ugly things like in they do next door what might be the reason well the reason the actual reason of course is that there were like smart political things done but the reason which is taught is that like it's a morally superior force there is sort of this halo attached to the army so that the deal the army gets in indian society is very interesting the deal is that unlike pakistan you guys don't come and like buy land and become basically a landlords the way they do in bangladesh and pakistan but they do get a very huge degree of veneration from the civilians mm. uh, to the point it's almost comical by the way like if you see some of the like culture which surrounds army in cant areas in various cities you know what i'm talking about yeah so now how how that how kashmir plays into that is that kashmir sort of breaks that delusion of the indian civilian here are a bunch of people an entire state saying we don't like you and we don't like your army yeah. mm-hmm. and your army is not this divine force of justice and this honorable whatever you guys think it whenever somebody says that out aloud like for example when somebody like prashant bhushan or arundhati roy or whoever says it that is a huge degree of cognitive dissonance to the common indian civilian mm-hmm. you know they literally cannot process that hmm. there are people i have talked to in my life smart people people who have had similar education as me people who have had similar degree of privilege as me as who have like you know who should be knowing better who literally cannot internalize the idea that army men in an occupied territory can rape yeah you know so the no, ex- course, so yeah. the existence of that problem creates this weird situation in a lot of indians heads wherein one way out of it is to annihilate that problem and mm. that is what i think the present dispensation realized was the quickest way and like the most easy way to appropriate that you know it's not an accident that if somebody attacks an army they are called terrorists it's like you are attacking these you are attacking our boys you are attacking this holy force which we all like these obviously honorable men who are willing to lay their lives out for us and if you are attacking them you must be monsters and right. this is this is actually one of the reasons why i think nationalism is such a terrible thing because 
it can make uh, good people do terrible things and in that sense it's something similar to religion but unlike religion it doesn't even have the saving grace of having a universalist or you know a sort of a Morality. universal <laughs> idea of brotherhood or... well i think part of the problem is that nationalism is always pitting itself against other nationalisms right so you now yes. have indian nationalism against kashmiri nationalism and i would say that a sort of more marginalized nationalism that's literally trying to be self definition self identification i i think nationalism is fraught i'm not going to i don't want to pick a side per se but i think it has useful functions that obviously many times are appropriated and hijacked by the wrong forces um but i do want to move the conversation on to something we already talked about a little bit which is how popular culture actually manages to create the sort of uh, common sense of you know army being good borders being good uh, you know citizenship being defined in some very specific ways yeah it's a very peculiar the way in which it works because i mean as you know everybody knows and as we've discussed for so long there obviously are these contesting nationalisms and india being such a plural kind of culture which is something we even like to be proud of you know like we always talk about that you know the old cliche that we grew up in school hearing unity and diversity mm-hmm. or like largest democracy also means like you know largest number of opinions in that sense uh we all know this little things circulate and just through sheer kind of conventional wisdom or repetitions seem to become realities in a weird way and mm-hmm. uh for example you know with uh, the national anthem uh being played in in movie halls and mm-hmm. the way that that became a sort of rule earlier you know some people would stand some people would not stand suddenly uh with the whole uh thing uh becoming approved by the court you know someone filing a pl and it being approved by the court and it becoming a law suddenly it's this not only are you actually legally vulnerable but other people suddenly feel like you know they're, they're it's it, it's taking sides now like if you if you sit down you're not just somebody who's disengaged you're somebody who is kind of giving the middle finger to the nation like that's the way you're perceived and like other people really want to prove themselves and double down on that and it was like a bizarre ironically had rabindranath tagore the guy who wrote janagana mana would have existed today he would have not stood up for the national yeah, I mean, anthem like, so i mean like as i mean like as the former mp from jadhav pur once said uh, people actually just read the first stanza and they don't actually look at the rest of the stanzas i mean the okay. so, the song itself is kind of a where is a song that actually is in some ways a critique of a narrow vision of nationalism right mm. right exactly which people, which people don't seem to realize because they just stick to the first stanza which is basically naming places and that's it but I mean, it's not even a song it's just naming places and Uh, i hope our audience is like like if if you are feeling pissed off that is good i hope that we are giving you some <laughs> vision which is different from because you know we understand that nationalism is one of those things which goes way beyond religion caste whatever like you can disown caste you can disown capitalism it goes in india you start dissing on nationalism it becomes a different game and we understand yeah. that but even if your nationalism is not really a vehicle to advance caste or whatever it can do harm oh, of course has yes. done harm in india yes. like secular nationalism has done harm in india like remember the indo chinese war it was the first yeah. time when we had concentration camps when we had yeah. innocent chinese people from bengal and i don't talk about bengal that is comrade promotes uh, domain but like <laughs> there were entire yeah. communities chinese of internment camps <laughs> they were they were interned they were basically packed off into these uh, jails in rajasthan and uh, completely Rajasthan, deprived Rajasthan. completely deprived of their rights 
so it is not always a trojan horse for I, other I horrible things nationalism yeah. is its own horrible thing often right. so but yeah. i do think so, that the ideas of nation though just to just to trouble what you're saying a little bit it's it it is the the power to define the other right and who has that power is really very often caste elites and religious true. elites so i do think that it's still tied in in a in a sort of complex way but i i get your point even I in secular times that nationalism is is so risky and and potent precisely because it can lend itself as the vehicle for all these different articulations right yes. i mean secular national nationalism can itself be um extremely poisonous and vicious without necessarily being the means to some yes. other kind of casteist or uh, or hindutva end but mm-hmm. but it also lends itself so well to precisely those you know brahminical ends and things like that right and another mm-hmm. another example if you're thinking again of like semiotics and these sort of unpredictable ways in which things become their own reality and their own kind of self validating reality is uh with again jai shri ram being uh, a chant that we're hearing in parts of india uh like i mean uh, like bengal like parts in the south mm-hmm. uh where it didn't have that kind of currency before and i've even heard some people uh defending the concept of ram rajya saying that why can't it just be a metaphor why do you have to look at it in this regressive way why can't it be some kind of authentic indian version of good rule and i'm like but this metaphor has never made sense with you before you we i never grew up in a household where the ramayan was a sort of reference point for it was a storytelling but it was never a reference point for morality and, and, and for and virtue interestingly enough interestingly enough the concept of ram rajya is not even present in like Uh, scholastic or like orthodox uh, brahminical like it's a completely modern concept actually just made yeah. up by like people like gandhi <laughs> it's like not even like that doesn't even have that much historical currency it just comes out of these like mishmash of bhakti movements and which by the way the whole uh, ram mandir fiasco was and it just Although, no, just... i mean i i'll have to disagree with regarding the uh, pre modernity of this there are obviously antecedents like consider thailand but true yeah. true 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 But you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about yeah. like that, that Ram Rajya. And also Jai Shri Ram. Okay, yeah. it was never Jai Shri Ram before the Ram Mandir movement. It was Jai Sri Ram. That has mm. always struck me in a very interesting fashion. The eraser of Sita out of there. Like they needed to completely reinvent Ram, basically. Like, That's interesting. Uh, Ram, Ram's imagery. If you look up like any like. you know if you look up like 1700 1800 like portrayals of ram mm. they yep. do not conform to what they these guys wanted so they basically made up ram all over again you know yeah. and uh, yeah. it's very interesting the way they did that they like you know people keep saying and it's almost become axiomatic that there are thousands of ram and each with its own story what we have forgotten is that they are still being written and the mm. hindutva ramayan happens to be one of them it's a completely modern invention This has been done in the past. The Gupta emperors like made caste a thing, a reified thing into the Ramayana, right? by the Shambhuka episode and all of that mm. stuff. But it it has not stopped. It it keeps evolving, and and Ram evolves with that. Yeah, and also last... what I wanted to add was that the, there's a certain aesthetic to this. I mean, last time when I was uh, traveling through rural Karnataka, uh, which was sometime last year, um, on a train journey actually, you suddenly. you suddenly see that there are these uh, sudden out there's a there's a sudden burst of temples in the countryside and all of the temple architecture mimics the ram mandirs of the of north india and this mm-hmm. that kind of shikhara design for the the architectural design for the shikharas just don't exist in karnataka especially 
yeah, the yeah. region I was in with badami and humpy and all that. It's and and it's really adjacent disturbing. to this thing, something very adjacent to Ram and temple building and all is Chanakya. So like yes. that is also like a very loved tool of modern Hindutvadis where they take this. So interestingly, both Chanakya imagery and Ram imagery come from television serials of all things. Of course. Yeah, there, there, there were like television and then everybody used to watch DD. And you know, this is like hilariously actually commented upon like in another television, like going very meta on how the ideas of nationhood form. Like this recent Netflix television series, Sacred Games, it actually comments on that, that, uh. you know, the Ram Mandir movement came out of people watching TV. And oh, this is documented also. But yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah. And the, the Chanakya thing also, it came out of a television series. Like before that, there was no public imagination of Chanakya like that. Even yeah, like, technically people don't even know whether Chanakya and Kothilya are the same people. Or whether or the, either of them existed or both of them existed. One thing we have to talk about is how the Overton window has on nationalism has gradually shifted right yeah. mm. which we have not been talking about. And here's what I think is interesting because if you look at what was politically acceptable because... Uh, and this is something I keep coming back to a lot, uh, personally, is that, for instance, uh, the largest opposition party when uh, Nehru was in power was the Communist Party of India. Mm-hmm. And later on, its derivatives. Now, the Communist Party of India, after, even after schism, the Communist Party of India, Marxist and the CPIML, these parties until uh, the CPIM until the 70s, for instance, had a position that were in some sense, supported the right to self-determination of certain places, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be perfectly fair, ML liberation, CPIML liberation, which is still a part, uh, poli- uh, you know, mainstream political party that contests elections, etc., has the right to self-determination as one of its key principles. Uh, however, I mean, the CPIML liberation is now a very, very minor party. The CPIML is fast becoming a minor party. But you had, you know, major opposition parties articulating this position as part of the party program even as late as the 1970s right mm-hmm. even as late as the emergency but now if you look at the cpi party program today mm-hmm. uh, their assessment of the indian state has changed by the way so you know one thing that we can we know about communist parties is that you know they have all these big they can back calculate their way into the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they basically they basically play a lot of mental gymnastics with a lot of jargon thrown around and justify whatever position that it is that they want to take at this point. <laughs> However, uh, the communist parties have essentially become a, a sort of diet congress. They, this move towards the right in their own discourse is being prompted also by a uh, shift to the right in the general discourse itself, and general political discourse. It's not like they're, all, but they're just suddenly deciding one day, hey, let's have an idea, let's, you know, completely disown our radical positions and, you know, become this milk toast left of center party. No, this is being motivated by certain developments that are happening simultaneously, nationally, locally, whatever. Yeah, but I like, uh, I would say that you can't also sort of basically say that it's all very deterministic. Like we have just said, the liberation. No, no, obviously they could have have maintained, I mean, like they could have I mean, like it's taking the easy they way. They could have tried, resisted better, is what I'm saying. Like they could yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. have they resisted definitely better. Could have, they, could, they might. They, they chose to take the. Uh, they, they chose the easy way out of that. They could have stuck by their principles. And even if they could have like pragmatically bended here and there, 
like uh, yeah. the capitulations we have seen from them are like i wouldn't even yeah, call but, it pragmatic i would call them like yeah, but, but, but you see that you know there is really no political party in india today that is willing at, at least in parliament today that is willing to be critical of the state at a foundational level true mm. how mm. further and um, this was something that the communist parties once did so can we further, say that we've gone from the viet cong to the diet cong <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that you know, with the gradual capitulation of them towards the center, you've also seen other opposition parties also mimic the same process. For instance, other opposition parties today, and now the problem has become that opposition to the Modi government itself has become a very radical, seemingly radical position, right? Mm, exactly. And and yeah. there are of course, and of course there is also the problem with. opposition parties playing the game of false nationalism versus real nationalism where they are trying to out bjp the bjp look at the national projection of them the national projection of them in the media for instance is that uh, you know there is this giant conspiracy going all the way from lakians to the forests of bastar right yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently this giant conspiracy after they after they catch a hold of our episode we will also be by the way a part of this conspiracy just like laying it out there well what i was going to say though is that there is that the contestation of nationalisms again is that my nationalism is better than yours a true left commitment to nationalism would actually mean an internationalist solidarity right we're not yeah, building those those internationalist movements that the left used to identify with that yeah, it sees yeah. itself as connected to and that it 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 should ideally build a foreign policy of of working with that is completely absent in the indian left no, and it's certainly that, but i feel like what i've been witnessing in in say certain situations like in the us for example uh with the uh, with the right becoming much more uh vicious i feel like the the progressive voice has also tried has got a little more strident and there there is also this my nationalism versus your nationalism but there is from people who are who are barely even on the left right like absolute liberals a lot of white people a lot of middle class people they have been willing to say that this is absolutely antithetical to the america that they know and they do not want america to be like this and they want to kind of reconfigure what america can be now we can say that this has it's uh, that it's a flawed premise but it, but at least this is the discourse that is there whereas i feel like in but there you see there is a first amendment and we have a uapa with the right getting stronger the left hasn't also got stronger you know so it, like what would have been interesting is if we had a strengthening on both ends of the spectrum a lot of this has to do with like the fact that we are a like a we are a country which came out of colonialism like The Maybe about, yeah. Also, you know, talking about like desire and affect and all these things, I do think what you said about maybe it coming out of the colonial moment is part of what it is. But there is a weird thing that like the loyalty comes first, and then everything kind of comes from that. So, uh, so too many people who, for yeah, by all other reasons, should be critical of what's going on, and they know heart of heart what's going on is wrong. Their first impulse is to say is to fit things within the justification for the nation, not to change what the nation could mean. It's always like right. no. this is us and we're actually okay so i i want to come back here to something that uh, benedict anderson the sort of guru of of all things <laughs> nationalism has actually said about how uh, print culture had a role to play in how uh, european nations began identifying as nations right um you were looking at a time when literacy was on 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 an increase and print capitalism was starting to really take place in a way that was very profitable for newspapers so the spread of literacy and the spread of actual print cultural uh, texts was something that actually fomented 
entered the national movement in in Europe. And I feel like an extension of that is happening right now in India with Hindutva, particularly, um, and the spread of digital web cultures. Right? We all know that you know Twitter has been colonized by by the bhaks, and you know they make hashtags trend on a daily basis. The IT sellers on like you know full 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 fledged you know they get a full pay package to just keep uh, promoting all of Modi's garbage. And then you also have uh, WhatsApp, which is a which is a space that have really managed to utilize in a way that's been highly productive. It's very very hard to argue against, and particularly when they really sort of create a space and a, and a sort of uh, environment where violence becomes justified. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know what to do with this because it's something that we constantly confront where, you know, images of people being lynched, images of people being burned, images of people being beaten. These are just circulated willy-nilly and, and, and they're either spread as like, this is what we're doing to traitors or worse that, you know, we need to see these images to see the real India or something like that. And I'm just constantly disturbed by that. Which to me seems very, very unprecedented because I haven't really seen it in, uh, I mean, like, I've, I've seen Europe, I've seen, like, I mean, I know people in, like, America, etc. And it doesn't seem that way, to be happening that way, where you suddenly see this entire space, this entire public space, this democratized space, you know, and, you know, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, when the Arab Spring, etc. was going on, everyone was talking about these spaces becoming the new spaces of where, you know, certain kinds of progressive movements would ferment. You mean the, the right? digital space, right? Huh? You mean yeah, the, the, digital, the digital, yeah. There was so much optimism about yeah. these digital spaces being yeah. uh, spaces of uh, democratization and progressive politics for that yeah. matter. Now you see a very right-wing thing, uh, you know, this entire thing becoming a very statist, a very uh, authoritarian, a very Hindutva kind of vision of the public, you know, a, yes. a very colonization. Do you have a, like a theory as to why that is so? <laughs> ah, you know, okay. Uh, you, give me a minute, but uh, the thing is... Uh, <laughs> because you're describing the problem and I, like, we all get it, like everybody and their aunt I know. knows it. Like, but I, I feel like WhatsApp has weirdly caught the imprint of this, like, ugliness that was always there but it's like it's immediate manifest in a way that's just yeah i mean like i mean okay so one okay one one guy we shall not name here uh one said something you know on uh, facebook on mega facebook is that you know um he said something like you know it takes one the thing about whatsapp is that uh you know when you're organizing etc right to create trouble, you just need one incident of trouble. But to, like, you know, stop trouble from happening, you need to be vigilant at every step. And you moderate you and, and the forward seems to give it some kind of authenticity. Like, oh, so many people right, sent right. it. I mean, like, I, I remember taking a local train from Shialda to some uh, um, part of Bengal, okay, some district anyway. Uh, I was traveling around rural Bengal. And there's this guy who just takes out his phone beside me. Uh, and he's watching a video of someone being beheaded. Okay. Jeez. Now, yeah. Now, the thing is that beheading video, you know, if you actually look at it, they were speaking Spanish. Okay. And <laughs> it very clearly was some sort of drug cartel in, uh, um, in uh, I don't know, in Latin America. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, from nowhere, there is this Allahu Akbar which comes in. Oh, right? my God. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. So, uh, in the WhatsApp group that it's been said, it's from Hindutva group. And this kind of thing is happening. Now, how do you like tell, you know, can you like really tell someone like, okay, that, you know, boss, that's not, uh, you know, that's not what you think. It's it hard is. to track. 
you know, we do things on the internet we typically wouldn't do in person, or we say things on the internet that we typically wouldn't do in person. Like I say a lot of things. Um, I might be saying a lot of things on the internet that I'm not even saying on this podcast. You have already done. You definitely do. You, you have done <laughs> yourself. <laughs> yeah. By saying so, that so, you talk so, there. Sorry, I was going to say, if you're going to look for a theory, I generally think it's you. You're marrying the ideologies of Brahminism with uh, the ideologies of techno-capitalism, and so there has already been a, a fairly strong, rigorous critique of news as entertainment, right? The right. the arnobification of yeah. Indian news, shall we say, um, where everything is 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 sort of narrated in a language of that is meant to entertain you, shock you, titillate you, you know, tantalize you, and it's your reactions are sort of groomed already by this sort of broadcast news culture. So when you start yeah. getting it in WhatsApp, you're immune to it. You don't even see it as reality. Yeah, but see, I'm not talking specifically about that kind of upper class, upper class society. But what concerns me more, because see, I most of us generally agree that upper caste, upper class society is to a great degree irredeemable. Okay, in some sense, <laughs> <laughs> although we're trying to do it. I mean, through this podcast or whatever. I mean, like yeah. Full, full Thanks. Disclosure. Going to uh, kill myself after this, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time at the same time you know when i say the, the more disturbing aspect of this, that it's being permeated in yeah i i don't like okay society. one of the biggest examples of whatsapp uh, powered genocide happened in burma you know mm-hmm. and yeah. the people who were perpetuating the genocide were also from like extreme margins of society mm-hmm. so the yeah. thing is that i do not think it of this in terms of caste at all i have a completely different theory for it but it's like a theory which is based on um, sort of gramscian uh, sort of ideas of information asymmetry like you know we keep using this word democratization democratization i think it's a very inaccurate word for what happened to the internet agreed because mm-hmm. democratization at some point means that you have people who are invested in some manner into a system and they have some degree of information symmetry when they make choices mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. is not what the internet has done what it has done and, and it actually goes like beyond techno capitalism as well in a way that it has enabled broadcast not communication even when you are communicating you are essentially broadcasting you think about twitter for a minute um, how do most people use twitter they don't use it to talk they use it to shout and it's right hmm. uh, facebook yeah. also facebook was initially meant for people to talk with their friends now people use it to write scripts hmm. yeah know? and everybody comes and like likes and shares and reacts and it, it's all of these have become broadcast mediums not mediums of uh, not mediums of uh, you know engagement of any sort and and uh, you sort of have this decentralized uh, dog eat dog world there for me and mm. whatever social construct whether it be capitalism whether it be brahmanism whether it be just plain old feudal sort of hatred because in a lot of areas where this has become violent it's not even like capitalist in that sense like mm. you know like look at like people butchering each other in burma what's capitalist about that what capitalist interest does it serve like does it even serve whatsapp's interest like you know at some point you you have to realize that it's not just that you there is some bahari hat here and there is some uh, sort of thing going on which will like somehow aid the core against the periphery no not really sometimes it's 
it's a horrible situation where you have this enabling technology of broadcast to come in and then people get to shout out their hatreds which have which are centuries if not millennia old to each other it's and like then, a weird primal pleasure really in being able to do something like that yes, and i know there are critics of that you know there are people who would be like no no this is capitalism this is techno capitalism but i really doubt like there was this case uh, in india where these four uh, sort of uh, nomads who were going from village to village trading yeah. they were locked up for i don't know how many i think there were four they were locked up in the village panchayat all and then burnt alive from what i remember and the yeah. village was afraid that they were child kidnappers yeah yeah this was in dhule uh, and uh, like you may try to like you know figure out a sort of a larger sort of a uh, angle there like but it it doesn't lend itself easily and it- it may not lend itself easily in the sense that we may not understand what is motivating people and what we are understanding about the human sort of agency being involved here but to me it's a larger sort of you know the availability of markets whatsapp has a huge market in india no. they are actually no. absolutely investing in that so it serves capital to some extent now that's it's not also, the end goal i'll agree it, with you it, on that it, it serves capital also to sort of push nationalism Of what course, we are, yes. what yeah, we are, what we are seeing a lot these days in some of these platforms, especially on YouTube, is that uh, what they have realized is that a certain kind of material sells. Yes. And then, of course, they realize if it becomes too much, it stops selling because then you know all the woke types start objecting. Yeah. So, so I have this theory that they're actually trying to you know fine tune the correct amount of it, like the you know at what point it's like. I would agree. Also, Sell most, but the tipping I mean, point. Yeah. This is like oh a, yeah, like Zoom, like Zomato. Yeah, exactly. Like Zomato. <laughs> you know, like at what? And you know, everybody is doing that, like this hedging game, like the Times Group. It has like uh, Times now, and then it has Mirror now. Mirror now. And uh, they wow. play this. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's like pretty. Like the, even the names are kind of transparent. Yeah, <laughs> like the like they are almost like rubbing it in our faces that you know nationalism. Look at it. Look, you're watching a farce. You're yeah. I think at this point we have covered a lot, and I think we should end it and let our like. Okay, I have a point to end on. Okay, let's let's have your point, Comrade. So yes, there is a lot to think about in terms of nationalism, the media, the common sense of it all. Um, what internal nationalisms and external nationalisms are going on, even within a nation. Um, I think I want to end with a little bit of Fanon um, in from Wretched of the Earth, where um, right at the end of this chapter on nationalist consciousness, he has this wonderful line that says, "A bourgeoisie that provides nationalism alone as food for the masses fails in its mission and gets caught up in a whole." series of mishaps but if nationalism is not made explicit if it is not enriched and deepened by a very rapid transformation into a consciousness of social and political needs in other words into humanism it leads up a blind alley and then he adds right at the end the national government if it wants to be national ought to be governed by the people and for the people for the outcasts and by the outcasts no leader however valuable he may be can substitute himself for the popular will and the national government before concerning itself about international prestige ought first 
to give back their dignity to all citizens, fill their minds and feast their eyes with human things and create a prospect that is human because conscious and sovereign men dwell therein. So it's it's a it's a call to humanism basically. And I'd like to think about, you know, the 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 end goal of all nationalism should be never to sacrifice what what is human. And I think that might be something we we all hopefully agree on. So on that note, I'm going to end the podcast today. A big thank you to uh, Chandu, Pramod and Pinky. We had an excellent conversation, if if a tad bit long. Um, please like, share and subscribe us. We've been getting good feedback and we really, really are grateful for it. Uh, we are at Analysis Pod on Twitter. So please follow us there. Uh, we'll try and upload more episodes weekly. We also have a Patreon uh, patreon.com slash material analysis so please if you're feeling generous please put some money in it because we we do need some funds to keep this going um, but other than that have a good safe and um, very sort of fruitful week thank you everybody